far away from the good people as possible. Um, after a lot of hard work and love from the people at church, this is what Mary says. She says, I, I get to be the person I was never able to be. I get to help people without someone trying to take advantage of me. She says that what she makes in a month at Seed, she used to make in one night on the streets. And she, at one point, had it all. She had new cars, jewelry, travel, nice condos, but she also had beatings, rape, and so much horror, she says. She says, you can't buy what I'm going through right now. I never thought I'd be this person I am now. Recently, their church went on a mission trip to the Philippines. Mary went along, and the purpose was to reach out to prostitutes in the Philippines. Um, she said, she told the reporter, she said, I want those women to know there's hope. You can change. There are people out there that really want to help, and you've got to try to believe. Just like you went out there and took a chance on the streets, you've got to take a chance on this as well. What, what I love about that is I, I, I just think that's what we do, right? We give hope to people who have no hope. That's what, this is exactly what our mission is, to spread the good news of hope in Jesus to people who have no hope. Um, and it's not, it's not just for people outside looking in. This is what it means to be the church for each other. When, when someone is in the hardest place imaginable, they need to hear there's hope in Christ. And we, we need to share that with each other. We, we bear the hope of Christ to each other. We tell each other there's always hope if God's in the equation. There's always hope. And this is exactly what I think God is doing for us in Acts chapter 23, through the life of the Apostle Paul. Um, so if you want to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 23, that's where we'll be today. And it's a lengthy story that I'm going to read to you in its entirety, and it's kind of tangledy and twisted here and there. But I just want you to make sure you come away from, from this teaching this morning with one simple thing that's contained in two words. You ready? You can write it down. But it's only two words, okay? Same God. Same God. I just want you to remember, as we watch Paul's life, it's covert, but it's inescapable. God is at work. Same God, Paul's life. Same God, our life. Okay. So, open Acts 23. Let me pray for our time. And we'll dive in. Father, um, by your spirit now, do a good work in us. Bring hope to us. Hope overflowing. Hope for the nations. Hope for the brokenhearted. Hope for us all. Um, use your word towards that good end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, does anybody remember last Sunday's newspaper headline? Anybody remember? Exactly. And so that means you probably don't remember my sermon either. So let's just do a little review and give you some context for what we're about to do because we're in a continuing story 
in the life and especially the, the trials of the Apostle Paul. You remember last week, Paul was almost beaten to death by a mob of Jews who accused him of defiling, falsely accused him of defiling their temple. And they were about to beat him to death only to be narrowly rescued by the Roman soldier stationed in Jerusalem who rescued him. Okay? He's, being, he's being taken away by them. And Paul, you remember, begged the commander, the military commander, for an opportunity to turn around and tell his story of, of how he came to know Christ to the very mob that was just about to beat him to death. And they were listening intently until Paul shared the part that he had been sent by God to the Gentiles, to the nations that weren't Jewish. And then the mob started up again. The soldiers had to rescue him again. They had to carry him away in order to rescue him. Now, the Roman commander has a riot, a near riot on his hands. He's desperately trying to figure out what's going on. So he decides he's going to have Paul flogged to get the truth out of him. And you remember that, that horrible punishment is just about to take place when Paul played his Roman citizen card, right? And, and it spared him that punishment. Um, and so the, um, the, the Roman military leader, the tribune or the commander, is still trying to figure out who this guy is. And so in order to answer that question, he takes a different tack in our passage today. Last verse of chapter 22 it says, on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, this tribune unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council, also known as the Sanhedrin, to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So, when this guy arrested Paul, what he thought he had was an Egyptian terrorist, Turns out he's got a Jew on his hand, and he, he can't figure out what, why the crowd is so upset with him. So he needs input from this Jewish council called the Sanhedrin to sort things out. The Sanhedrin was the highest-ranking Jewish judicial council in Jerusalem. It's been likened to our Supreme Court. Okay? It's that level of folk. And it's being led at this time by a guy named Ananias. He's the high priest. And one writer described Ananias this way. He's a scoundrel, an embarrassment to the Jews. He used his office for material gain. He didn't hesitate to use violence to achieve his goals. He was so hated by the Jews that he was violently killed in the Jewish uprising in Jerusalem a number of years later. Okay. So that's the guy heading up the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin has a long history and terrible history concerning Jesus and the followers of the way, all the way back to Christ himself. In, in John chapter 11, we find that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin, same group, same organization, right, same group of folk, and said, what are we to do with Jesus? This man performs many signs. From that day, they made plans to put Jesus to death. And they found their opportunity to do that. Matthew records it at the end of his gospel. The chief priests, the whole Sanhedrin, were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. And as part of that trial, Jesus says to the high priest, you have said so. I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest 
tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they, they being the Sanhedrin, answered, he deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him. So this was Jesus' interaction with this group known as the Sanhedrin. Uh, It didn't get any better in the book of Acts for the disciples of Jesus. In Acts 4, Peter and John pulled before the Sanhedrin, commanded not to speak in Jesus' name ever again. In Acts chapter 5, the Sanhedrin pulls in the apostles and flogs them. In Acts chapter 6, Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin that would ultimately lead to his execution in these verses in Acts chapter 7. When the Sanhedrin heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him, and they cried with with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at Stephen, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So, the Sanhedrin has encountered Saul, whom we now know as Paul, before, and he was on their side. He was consenting to the martyrdom of Stephen. But now they cross paths once again. Perhaps some of the same men could still have been part of the Sanhedrin. Paul now crosses their path, and it's a very different shape of cross at this point in time. So Paul's standing before that collection of people, and he looks intently at the Sanhedrin, and he says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience, Up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. A lot of Christ-like parallels here. Just as the Sanhedrin struck Jesus on the mouth, here they are striking the apostle Paul on the mouth. And this story is full of those kind of parallels. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you. This is a very different response than Jesus gave when he was struck. You whitewashed wall, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And we learn a couple things about Paul here. One, he's not perfect, okay? He gets slapped he snapped, okay? I mean, he's, you know the fight-flight thing? Paul evidently leans to the fight side. And it comes out here in such a way that he, is, he regrets this as a reaction, not a response. And he confesses he's transgressed the law by this rash reaction. But, but at the same time, even though we see he's not perfect here, he can say that he has a clear conscience before God. And I think it's re- as regards that he's doing what God would have him do to the best of his ability. He's saying, essentially, I'm doing what God asked me to do. And I just want to stop right there and say this is, this is pivotal for what's going on in Paul's life at this point in time, that he's doing what God wants him to do. He has a clear conscience. Could you say what Paul says? Do you have a clear conscience before God that you're doing what God wants you to do? And if as you think about that, something gives you pause, then that's something that needs to be aggressively dealt with. If there's something 
in your, it violates your conscience before God. Anything that keeps you from having a clear conscience before God needs to be directly dealt with. C.S. Lewis says, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. And he says, if you violate your conscience, it's the latter. So, Anything that keeps you from having a clear conscience before God needs to be addressed immediately. Whether you feel like you're in the wrong place or you're doing the wrong thing or you're not doing the right thing, whatever it needs, it needs to be addressed through what the spiritual practice of confession, confessing your sin before God and repenting of that and turning back towards Him. And we find Paul making this confession in a really, really, before a really, really tough crowd. And he has a really, really bad start because he offends the high priest, his judge, and the jury of the Sanhedrin with his remark. So Paul's mindful of this, that it's not going well right out of the blocks. So he seems to change his strategy. Watch what he does next. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, two sects of the Jews, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee. A son of Pharisees, it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he'd said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him and when the dissension became violent the tribune afraid that paul would be torn to pieces by them commanded the soldiers to go down take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks so paul uses their theological differences as a kind of a diversion right and he calls out that he's on, he's a Pharisee and he's on trial for his hope in the resurrection of the dead. Now to do this in the Sanhedrin, it would be like cheering for Duke in a Franklin Street pub in Chapel Hill. Okay? You could get killed. Okay? It's that because this is a, a violent issue as you can tell. Um, what he says is true though. He is a Pharisee. We've heard him speak of that before. And he is on trial for the gospel of Jesus, of which the resurrection of the dead is a central part. What's fascinating, though, is that the Pharisees become Paul's advocates, and they declare his innocence. Um, And they admit that God may have spoken to him. And so we're trying to think, what, what did they have in mind when they say God might have spoken to him in a vision by an angel or such? And there's a recorded vision just in the previous chapter. I think I have it here. Is this the right scripture? Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Good. I had it wrong in the first service. Thank you very much. It says, uh, this is chapter 22. Paul said, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And 
and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So this is the, this is the closest vision that Paul has received. And it says, one, the Jews will reject you in Jerusalem. You should go to the Gentiles. And the Pharisees are now defending him in this matter. Obviously, God is using the Pharisees here. But it makes you wonder if he might also be at work in some of them. Could it be that some of the Pharisees, like Paul, are beginning to see the light of God's grace And if that's the case, then Paul's strategy does more than just save his own life. It may save theirs as well. But Paul finds himself in a place again, having been rescued from a mob by Roman soldiers. And this time, it's interesting, the mob is the equivalent of their Supreme Court. You thought our Supreme Court was divided? Their Supreme Court is coming to blows in the chamber, right? Um, the, The following night... The Lord, the Lord Jesus, stood by Paul, likely a dream or a vision of some sort, and said, Take courage, Paul, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So at the lowest of points, right, when, when the leaders of his own people have tried to kill him in a mob in a mob setting, when he finds himself imprisoned by the Romans, at the lowest of points, Jesus comes to him and encourages him, take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And he realizes then several really important things. One, he's going to survive Jerusalem. Okay? He's not going to die here. He's going to get to go on to Rome. Getting to go to Rome for Paul is like playing in the Super Bowl. Okay? It's, the head of the, it's the most important city in the Roman Empire. He's going to get to go and testify of Christ there. This is fabulous for Paul. So encouraging to him. It's the fulfillment of his commission. You remember back on that Damascus road when he was blind and the angel of the Lord spoke to um, Ananias, the disciple, the Lord said to him, go for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's going to happen. He'll be before the kings in Rome. So the other thing that Paul gets from this is he realizes God is greater than his opponents. No one is going to thwart God's good work that's going on in and through Paul. Not the Romans, not the Jews, not anyone. In fact, we'll see that almost against their will, unwittingly, they become tools that God uses to get Paul to Rome where where God wants him to go. He also realizes that God is greater than his sufferings. They will be redeemed for a greater good in God's hands. 
His faithfulness in the face of great suffering, it's not going to go to waste. The beatings, the mob brutality, the false accusations, the imprisonment, all of it matters, all of it's serving God's purposes, all of it's going to be redeemed. It's positioning him to testify of Christ in Jerusalem and in Rome. He sees God as, as sovereign over it all. All these details are being used by God to get him where he needs to be to do what God has asked him to do. Who would have thought that the Roman army would be Paul's protector? Who would have thought that the Pharisees would be his advocates? God's at work here. God is in control even when Paul suffers. And and that's what I want us to see as the rest of the story unfolds. See, when it was day, following that vision that Paul got, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So there's a plot hatched to take Paul's life. And it's pretty intense. It involves more than 40 assassins, plus the Sanhedrin. At least the the Sadducees will be in agreement and they'll they'll be part of that plan. Um, But things take a sovereignly unexpected turn. And what I want to do for you is read you the rest of the story And then we'll see how God's at work in it. So stay with me as we read through it. The son of Paul's sister, okay? Paul had a sister. Who knew, right? The son of Paul's sister, Paul's nephew, heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions, that's someone who who commands 100 soldiers, and said, take this young man to the tribune, the guy over all the soldiers, for he has something to tell him. So he took him, brought him to the tribune, and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire about something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one you've informed me, informed me of these things. And then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, 470 soldiers, to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor of all of Judea. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, that's the tribune's name, we learn. To His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. This man, Paul, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. 
And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their counsel. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So he, the tribune, says Paul is innocent. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, along, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by knife to Antipatris, about halfway to the governor. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, the governor asked what province Paul was from, and he learned that he was from Cilicia, and he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium or Herod's palace. Okay? Long, long story. Complicated. Lots of details. Uh, Think back through it with me, because God is working very covertly here, but undeniably. So, first thing is, Paul's nephew, probably a teen, possibly in his 20s, but probably a teenage kid, okay, happens, just happens to overhear the ambush that's being plotted against Paul's life. What, what are the chances of that happening? Okay? Um, You'd have a better chance if you went on The Price is Right of Bob Barker calling your name and saying, come on down, right? That's a 1 in 36 chance in case you're planning to attend. You'd have a better chance of that happening than this happening in this thing, okay? So upon hearing of the assassination plan, not only does this little teenager get access to Paul, the prisoner, but Paul takes one of the centurions, one of the commanders, Um, to take this teenager to the tribune, the top dog of the Roman militia in Jerusalem. And what does the centurion do? Without knowing the content of the message this young man is wanting to share with his boss, he takes him. So what are the chances of this soldier taking this teenager, whom the prisoner recommends to him, to the tribune to get an audience with him? You would have a better chance of being audited by the IRS than this happening. A one in 175 chance of being audited. So there's a couple of you that should really dot your I's and cross your T's, okay? Just based on the statistics in this room. This just doesn't happen. The odds are this is not going to happen. But not only does Paul's nephew, this teenager, overhear the assassin's plan, get access to Paul, get the centurion's ear, get access to the tribune, which is not an easy task because the tribune is commanding up to a thousand soldiers. It's an important guy. He's the chief military commander in all of Jerusalem. Not only does he get audience with him, but he takes him by the hand and takes him to the side. He gets private audience with the tribune. What are the chances of that? You'd have a better chance of winning an Oscar. You have a 1 in 11,500 chance of winning an Oscar. This just doesn't happen. These things don't just happen. So, our teenage nephew of a prisoner overhears the assassin's plan gets access to his uncle, the prisoner, gets the centurion's ear to get audience, private audience, with the tribune, the top military commander in Jerusalem. And what does the commander do? He listens to him, and he assigns 470 soldiers to deliver him safely. 
from the plan. What are the chances of that? Okay. You'd have a better chance of becoming a professional athlete. Yes, you, a professional athlete, than this happening. This is a 1 in 22,000 chance, I'm being charitable to some of you, um, of this happening. Okay. This kind of stuff just doesn't happen. And so Paul, who's arrested in Jerusalem, as a result of his arrest, he gets to tell his story to the mob that was trying to arrest him. He gets to speak briefly to the, to, the, uh, to the Sanhedrin. He gets to speak, I'm sure, to the centurion and to the tribune. And where does he end up? In front of the governor. Noah's going to teach us next week. He, he's going to tell his story to the governor of the entire province. What are the chances of that? You'd have a better chance of dating a supermodel than that happening. No picture. Uh, for this one. You got a 1 in 88,000 chance of dating a supermodel. You'd have a better chance of becoming president in the United, of the United States than this. It's a 1 in 10 million chance that you would become the president of the United States. You'd have a better chance of winning the Mega Millions lottery, a 1 in 135 million chance. Just as an aside, okay, you're more than 10 times more likely to become president than win the lottery, okay? You just file that away under wisdom and think about that the next time you're thinking, you're thinking about that. So what are the chances of all this stuff happening to Paul? You'd probably have, you'd have better chance of going down to the corner grocery store, buying a winning lottery ticket, meeting a supermodel, and then becoming a professional athlete and being elected president, right? This stuff just, I'm just saying, it doesn't just happen, okay? God is orchestrating Paul's steps. What are the chances of this happening? Really good. If the sovereign God of the universe is directing your steps and if you are living your life with a clear conscience before him, ready to be directed by him, they are good chances in the hands of a sovereign God. They are sure chances in the hands of a sovereign God. We see in Paul's example a God who redeems the very worst of circumstances, all of the details of that suffering that Paul's going through, it's all serving his good purposes to get Paul to Rome so he can testify there. False accusations, riots, imprisonment, theological disputes, teenage eavesdropping, assassination plots, arrests, dreams, and visions, it's all being used by God for Paul's good so that Paul will fulfill his calling. God is behind it all. God is redeeming it all. All of the details are part of what God is using. Now this, of course, brings us to our hard places, to, to hard or lost jobs, to difficult marriages or no marriage at all, to financial strain, to educational disappointments, to being unrecognized in sports or school, to family issues, to annoying neighbors, cars that break down, bills that are unexpected, medical emergencies, friends that betray us, on and on and on we could go. You remember the two words? Same God. Same God who was at work in Paul's greatest suffering and all of the details. Same God. 
you follow, you serve, same God. Uh, Philip Yancey is a really good author, Christian author, um, great writer, and he Early in his career as a writer, traveled, I think, for a number of years with Paul and Margaret Brand, who were missionary doctors in India who focused on lepers, working with lepers. And he tells this story of meeting one of their former patients. His name was Sadan. And he says, Sadan looked like a miniature version of Gandhi, skinny, balding, with thick spectacles, Perched cross-legged on the edge of a bed, the door to his modest apartment was open. Small birds flew in and out. A mangy dog lounged on the step. Sedan showed me his feet, which ended in smooth, rounded stumps instead of toes. He says, I met the brands too late to save these, but they did give me shoes that let me walk. In a high-pitched, sing-song voice, Sedan told Yancey wrenching stories of past rejection. Classmates who made fun of him in school. The driver who literally, with his shoe, kicked him off a public bus. The many employers who refused to hire him despite his training and talent. The hospitals that turned him away with a brusque, we don't treat lepers here. He says, when I got to Valor, where, where, the, where the brands lived, he says, I spent the night on the brands' veranda because I had nowhere else to go. He says, that was unheard of for a person with leprosy back then. He says, I can still remember when Dr. Brand took my infected, bleeding feet in his hands. I had been to many doctors, he said. A few had examined my hands and feet from a distance, but doctors Paul and Margaret were the first medical workers who dared to touch me. I had nearly forgotten what human touch felt like, he says. Even more, more impressive, they let me stay in their house that night. This was when even health workers were terrified of leprosy. And he counted the elaborate sequence of medical procedures. He had tendon transfers and nerve strippings and toe amputations and cataract removal, all performed by the brands. By transferring tendons to his fingers, <clears throat> they made it possible for him to write again. And now, he kept the books for a program that gave free leprosy care through 53 mobile clinics. Yancey writes that he talked for more than half an hour his past life was a catalog of human suffering, the stigma of which continues to this day. He says, just recently he sat alone in a car and watched his daughter's wedding from a distance because he was afraid his presence would disturb the guests. Yancey says, as the Brands and I sipped our last cup of tea in his home just before leaving to catch a plane to England, Sedan made this astonishing statement. He said, still, I must say that I am happy that I had this disease. I am happy that I had this disease. Happy? Yancey asked. Yes, replied Zidane. Apart from leprosy, I would have been a normal man with a normal family, chasing wealth and a higher position in society. I would never have known such wonderful people as Dr. Paul and Dr. Margaret. And I would never have known the God who lives in them. I am happy that I had this disease. You know, it almost sounds like Sedan has been reading Paul, the same Paul that, whose story we're watching unfold in Acts 23. Listen to what Paul writes in his letter to the Romans later. He says, more than that, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing 
that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. St. Paul writes again in 2 Corinthians after he's just chronicled all of his sufferings. He says um, that God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's not just Paul. Listen to what the Apostle James says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's not just Paul. It's not just James. Listen to what Peter says. Peter says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. See, Paul, James, Peter, the broader New Testament, it all agrees there is a God who redeems suffering and hardship for good. So we're back, we're back to those two words, right? Same God. The same God who is at work in Paul's false accusations and trials. The same God who is at work in Sedan's leprosy. The same God who is at work in Mary Nelson's suffering as a prostitute so that she then could minister to prostitutes one day. That God is the Lord of all your hardship. He is able and willing to redeem it all. Will you hope in Him? Will you trust in Him and be faithful through it all, believing what He has said, believing what we see about Him in Paul's life, which is recorded for our example? If you are willing to do that, let me give you an absolute essential for the task. You will not be able to stay afloat without this lifeline. This you must do. You must meditate and pray and think and reflect and recite and memorize and journal and learn and consider and ponder and embrace and believe what the Bible says about your suffering and about your hope. If you walk into the test that is your hardship and suffering without that vast knowledge of Scripture at the ready for you, it's like walking into an open book test without the book. Why would you do that? Take the book. You need the book. It's open notes. Take it with you. Listen to how Psalm 119 describes how the scriptures help us in this. He says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The scriptures in your hardship are your protection. They safeguard you from temptation. He goes on and says, my soul melts away for sorrow. 
Strengthen me according to your word. When you are in the hard places, the scriptures are your strength. The word is our protection and our strength. And you don't have to have a master's degree in theology to do this. You go back home. You go to your computer. You Google Bible verses on suffering. It will pull up a whole bunch of verses. The guys with the master's degree in theology have already put it in there for you. You just have to look it up. You just Google it, and it'll pull those up. You Google Bible verses on hope, and it'll pull them up for you. And then you meditate, and you pray, and you think, and you reflect, and you recite, and you memorize, and you journal, and you learn, and you consider, and you ponder, and you embrace, and you believe that there is a God so sovereign and so good that he can take it all and redeem it. Okay? Everything you are facing, everything you have faced, everything you will face, same God. Okay? Same God. He's worthy of your trust. He's your sure hope, the very anchor for your soul in your suffering. By His grace, you can persevere. By His power, you can fight the good fight through it all. Listen to what Peter says again. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I know that many of you are in hard places. I know some of your stories. I've heard them. We've prayed together. Um, and your burdens are big. They are unbearable if you bear them alone. And um, Christ is for you. He wants to strengthen you. He wants to redeem it all for good. And the church is for you. We are for you. We want to pray for you and bless you. So the worship team's going to come, and they're going to lead us in this tremendous confession of faith, one of the most beautiful confessions of trust in God and suffering that we have as a church family. And after the first stanza, we're going to take a break, and any of you who are facing hardship of any kind, it can be a little bitty hardship that's driving you crazy, or it can be the great big ones that you're bannering on your Facebook page, right? During that time, you come down, and the whole church is going to pray for you. We'll lead from up here, but the whole church wants to pray for you. So don't be shy. Um, we just want to pray for you. We want to pray God's richest blessings on your life. And we'll do that mid-song in just a minute. Daniel will stop and call, we'll, I'll call you down here. But let's stand. Let's declare our faith in God's goodness and his power.